Three U.S. soldiers killed in action. What is President Biden going to do? Accused of participating in the October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks, including infiltrating Israel and kidnapping Israelis. What the allegations now mean for this major relief group still operating in Gaza. And the push for a new trial for Alex Murdoch, the South Carolina attorney in prison for killing his wife and son. Why a juror who helped convict Murdoch now says his verdict was inappropriately influenced. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with big news in our world lead. Top White House officials say they do not want to go to war with Iran, but they are promising a serious response after a weekend drone attack killed three U.S. Army soldiers and wounded more than 40 others. The attack happened at a small U.S. outpost known as Tower 22 in Jordan. This is near the border with Syria and Iraq. This happened early yesterday morning. This afternoon, the Pentagon identified the fallen soldiers as 46-year-old Sergeant William Rivers, 24-year-old Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and 23-year-old Specialist Brianna Moffat. This is the first time U.S. troops have been killed by enemy fire since the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. Some of the most gravely wounded have been evacuated to a medical center in Germany, and the number of injured is expected to keep rising because it can take time for symptoms of traumatic brain injuries to appear. Moments ago, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, called this the most dangerous time in the Middle East in more than 50 years. U.S. officials say they're still trying to figure out exactly who was behind the attack. But this afternoon, Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said, the Pentagon is confident that the militia is a group supported by Iran. I don't have more to share in terms of an intelligence assessment on uh, if uh, leaders in Iran were directing this attack. But what I can tell you is that um, we know these groups are supported by Iran um, and therefore they do have their fingerprints on this. I want to bring in CNN's MJ Lee at the White House for us, CNN's Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon and CNN chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward, who is in Tel Aviv, Israel. MJ, President Biden met with his national security team earlier today as he considers his options for a response to the attack. Do we have any idea what the options might be? Yeah, Jake, we know that the president and his national security team are currently actively discussing uh, the possible acts of uh, retaliation. The two things, though, that are heavily weighing on those deliberations is, one, the desire to keep the conflict in the Middle East contained. The White House has said from day one that they do not want to see any scenario where the Israel-Hamas war broadens out into a wider regional conflict. And second, of course, is the desire by the president to respond to these attacks uh, from Sunday with real force. Uh, officials here at the White House say that the situation is now fundamentally all altered now that three American families have received the worst possible news imaginable. And if you listen to my exchange with John Kirby, the White House spokesman, a few minutes ago in the White House briefing room, you can tell that there is a real tension in trying to balance these two considerations. Take a listen. Please confirm, is the president currently actively considering potential attacks inside Iran? We are not looking for a war with Iran. We are not seeking a conflict with the regime uh, in a military way. Um, and as I said in the, in the opening, we're not, uh, we're not looking to escalate here. This attack over the weekend was escalatory. Make no mistake about it. And it requires a response. Make no mistake about that. I will not get ahead of the president's decision making. We're not seeing either way whether striking inside Iran is or isn't. We are not looking for a war with Iran, MJ. I am not going to speak to the president's decisions. 
And part of the intelligence gathering that is ongoing right now is whether the attack over the weekend was directed specifically by Iran or was the doing of a proxy group largely on their own. Uh, but for now, the White House is saying that it is no secret that Iran supports these groups, uh, has, provides resources to these groups, and certainly doesn't discourage these groups from taking these kinds of actions. They're also just making very clear, Jake, at this point, that any kind of retaliation by the U.S., that that is going to be a very complicated and very delicate decision. And Natasha, you have some uh, reporting about how this drone got over the U.S. base and how uh, it led to confusion and, and a delayed response. Tell us about that. Yeah, Jake, so what appears to have happened here is there were two drones that were kind of approaching the U.S. military outpost called Tower 22 in northeast Jordan roughly at the same time. There was an American drone that was returning to base, and then shortly thereafter, there was that enemy drone that kind of managed to sneak in, and it was flying low, according to U.S. officials, which also may have contributed to uh, air defenses being, it, it being able to evade uh, the base's air defenses. So there was confusion about just who this drone belonged to, and that may have contributed to a delay in the U.S.'s ability to respond here. But one other question that we had, and which I asked the Deputy Pentagon uh, Press Secretary today, is just how one drone could cause so much damage. Because in previous strikes that these Iran-backed groups have carried out on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, there have been small number of casualties, very light injuries, usually uh, a couple injured here and there. But never before have we seen one of these attacks injure upwards of 40 service members and kill, of course, three uh, U.S. service members. And the answer I got is that essentially this drone hit a living facility where these service members were sleeping. They were in their beds. It was early in the morning on Sunday. And essentially there was just not time to uh, evacuate the area. And so now the question that Central Command is going to be trying to figure out, among many other questions, among them who is responsible for this, is what needs to be done to bolster security at this base because there are 350 U.S. Uh, Army and Air Force personnel currently stationed there. And Clarissa, today one Iranian-backed militia came out and said the attacks against U.S. soldiers will continue until the U.S. leaves the region. We heard uh, Admiral Kirby talk about this being escalatory. How big of an escalation was this drone attack, do you think? It's a major escalation, Jacob. There can be no question about that. Since October, there have been more than 170 attacks uh, from these Iran-backed militias on U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq and now Jordan. But this is the first time we've actually seen them kill uh, U.S. servicemen. The question is, was the intention to escalate or was this somehow happenstance you heard natasha talking about the various issues with air defenses there was this a deliberate attempt to escalate we've seen iran come out already and say we did not have any part in this that may be an attempt to try to avert a direct escalation with the u.s but ultimately i think at this stage jake for president biden it doesn't really matter what the intention was he has to respond to the reality this is a moment where the u.s has been leading a military campaign against the houthi militia in yemen and so far it has done very little to avert those attacks on the shipping channels in the Red Sea. And so this really is a crucial instance where the White House needs to show a forceful and compelling response. But as we've seen so often with the Biden administration, they tend to prefer a very sort of carefully calibrated Goldilocks response. And in this instance, with all the various uh, proxies at play, whether they go for an attack on one of these Iran-backed militias or on Iran itself, it is a very delicate moment and it is a very difficult needle to thread, Jake. 
All right, Clarissa Ward, Natasha Bertrand, MJ Lee, thanks to all three of you. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut. He's the ranking Democrat on the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So based on what you have seen and heard, does the U.S. know who exactly was behind this attack? We will soon, Jake. Uh, as you sense from the Pentagon briefing, um, its attribution is not 100% done yet. But you know, we know who's operating in the area. We've got a, we've got the capability ultimately to figure out exactly who. You know, at the end of the day, and you know, it's a somber day around here because you look at the pictures of those young people who are just serving their country. Um, you know, attribution is important, but uh, whoever it was, it was somebody who was operating with the permission of Iran. Iran, knowing that every time they attacked a U.S. base, there was some chance you were going to get fatalities. A lot of us have spent time thinking what happens when there are U.S. fatalities, and now we are in that world. So the response um, is going to be uh, important and hopefully calibrated in such a way as to send a very strong signal uh, without increasing dramatically the odds that we get into a shooting war with, the, with, with Iran. But how much do you blame Iran? And do you see this as a direct escalation between Iran and the United States, given that American soldiers have now been killed? Well, remember, Iranian proxies have been shooting at U.S. military bases for a very long time, and it's sort of been the grace of God and good luck that we have not seen uh, fatalities until now. So, we, you know, Iran crossed that Rubicon long ago, and they're not dumb. They know that when they're shooting ordnance at U.S. bases, that there is some probability that they kill Americans. Well, they did that, and so now they are going to see a response that really is going to have two objectives. Number one, to send a deterrent effect, and that's why that response needs to be very, very strong. Uh, if it were me, it would be about taking out an awful lot of the infrastructure of these proxy groups in places like Syria, maybe hitting the Houthis harder, uh, but also without escalating. You know, I have colleagues that are calling for attacks inside Iran. Uh, you know, you know what would also be escalatory if we killed a whole bunch of Iranian civilians. As tragic as the death of American servicemen uh, are was in in Jordan, uh, we need to be careful that we send a very strong signal that this will not be tolerated without putting the Iranians in the position where now they're going to start shooting at our ships and we find ourselves in a war in the Persian Gulf. I want to get your reaction to comments from former United Nations ambassador and presidential candidate uh, Nikki Haley today. She called for President Biden to take out the leaders of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard uh, who obviously are in Iran. Take a listen. You have to figure out which Iranian leaders are making the decisions and you take them out. This isn't about hitting Iran. This is about being strategic and smart about what you do take out. Find one or two of them that are making the decisions. It will chill all of them when you do that. What's your take on that? Well, my take, and of course, I've seen very, very hawkish things. I saw a couple of United States senators saying target Tehran. You know, in national security, you can almost always see the inverse correlation between the aggressive suggestions of somebody and the actual responsibility that they bear uh, for the decisions that will be made. So Nikki Haley is a long way from occupying the Oval Office. Now, look, uh, they killed U.S. service people, right? So the right response here would be painful not just to militias, but to the IRGC. Right. So, again, I hope that the White House comes up with a response that that brings a lot of pain to the IRGC. But again, taking shots inside Iran with the risk, the attendant risk that we kill a lot of innocent Iranian civilians, that would be a pretty good way to escalate this even further into a, you know, into a spiral that might not that we might not be able to control. When the U.S. and its allies first carried out strikes against Iranian backed Houthi targets in Yemen, President Biden said this. We've already delivered the message to Iran. They know not to do anything. We will make sure that we respond to the Houthis if they continue this outrageous behavior, along with our allies. Are we the fact of possible? No. 
Iran does not want to war with us. I think they are. So at the very top of that, uh, the president said, I've already delivered the message to Iran. They know not to do anything. Do you think that Iran knows not to do anything? I mean, their proxies are killing American soldiers. Yep. And we need to remember that in the case of the Houthis, um, there is no respect for life there, their own or anybody else's. The best thing that have happened to the Houthis, which probably, you know, until uh, three weeks ago, nobody had ever heard of, and at least in, you know, uh, you know around, around dinner, American dinner tables, the best thing that ever happened to these guys was to find themselves in a war with the United States. So what that says to me, Jake, is that the response needs to go beyond just sending a message. The response needs to also be about taking away capability. That is finding the missile launching sites, finding the drone launching sites, finding the logistical supply lines, and taking those out because deterrence alone won't work. Now, again, I still think it's a very dangerous thing to call for strikes inside of Iran because of the risk of civilian Iranian deaths in that instance. But, you know, the Houthis are not going to be deterred. So we need to take away their, their, their weaponry. Democratic Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut. He's also the ranking Democrat on the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Staying in the region now, financial support is dwindling fast for the main United Nations relief group operating in Gaza. This after some damning claims and evidence about 13 staffers accused of participating in the October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel. And now Israeli intelligence is laying out the allegations and evidence, including one worker accused of kidnapping an Israeli woman. What else is detailed in the report? That's next. Back with our world lead, new intelligence from Israeli officials today details the extent to which the biggest aid organization in Gaza is, in the words of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, perforated with Hamas. As of this hour, 10 of the top 20 government donors to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, have suspended funding those 10 countries donated more than $700 million in 2022, according to UNRWA. CNN's Nick Robertson is in Israel as we learn more about the dozen UNRWA employees fired for allegedly participating in the horrific October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. More than 110 days into the ugly war, Hamas's brutal attack triggered. Israeli allegations 13 UN staff took part are themselves threatening to bring more suffering. According to a document shared with CNN, six UNRWA employees infiltrated Israel as part of the attack. Four were involved in kidnapping Israelis and three additional UNRWA employees were, quote, invited via an SMS text message to arrive at an assembly area in the night before the attack and were directed to equip with weapons, although it's not known if they showed up. Israeli officials brief US counterparts Friday, who quickly paused UNRWA's funding. A dozen other countries have followed, raising concerns the agency's absence could escalate suffering in Gaza. The impact will be devastating of, of cutting aid to the organization that is the backbone of services to Palestinian civilians. There is no other organization, including my own, we're all there in Gaza, that could take over what UNRWA is doing. UNRWA is the only organization bringing aid into Gaza. Most of Gaza's two million residents depend on them. They provide food, water and shelter. 
Desperation already so bad, aid trucks often looted before they reach warehouses. A cut in funding here is feared on a par with Israel's bombs. This will mean more starvation, poverty and deprivation, this university professor tells us, which ultimately means more death. This decision means killing us, killing the human being, she says. This is a death sentence. This is the only thing we live on. And you want to cut it? UNRWA has fired nine staff over the allegations and is investigating two others. One person is dead, the UN promising a comprehensive and transparent investigation. Israel's foreign minister is calling for UNRWA's director, Philip Lazzarini, to step down and cancelled a meeting with him Monday. As other government lawmakers press for scrapping UNRWA altogether, a long-held aim for some. For many years we have said that UNRWA is involved with terrorism. They collaborated with Hamas for generations. The UN is in charge of the UNHCR, which takes care of all the refugees worldwide. Why do you need a special agency for the Palestinian refugees? Egeland points to the ICJ ruling Israel must enable humanitarian aid for Gaza. There will be epidemic disease because of this uh, unless it is reversed. The stakes are enormous here and I'm very disappointed with these donors who, who spent zero time in suspending aid to an entire organization for the sins of a few staff. And I think it's very interesting that this has reached such a level over the space of the weekend since the allegations became clear on Friday. It is only now today, Monday, that the UN spokesman said their internal investigation body has actually started the investigation, Jake. All right, CNN's Nick Robertson uh, is in Tel Aviv, Israel for us. Thank you so much. Now, UNRWA says a majority of its budget goes towards education. And at the beginning of 2023, UNRWA operated nearly 300 schools in Gaza, taught almost 300,000 Gaza children, and employed more than 9,000 teachers and staff. UNRWA says it follows the host authority's curriculum and, quote, supplements these with its own materials on human rights, according to the aid group's website. But an organization that analyzes textbooks worldwide, the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance in School Education, or Impact SE, finds, quote, UNRWA's educational materials incite violence, glorify martyrs and suicide attacks, demonize Israel, and promote anti-Semitism. With us in studio is the CEA, CEO of Impact SE, Marcus Chef. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. So I, I want to read an example um, that your organization translated from textbooks used in these UNRWA schools in Gaza. In a grade seven science lesson, Newton's second law is demonstrated through an image that you can see there on the right, of your, right side of your screen of a masked Palestinian boy aiming a slingshot at approaching soldiers. Uh, they're not identified specifically as Israeli soldiers, but there's only one kind of soldiers that would be in Gaza or the West Bank. Students are asked, what are the forces that influence the object after it's released from the branch, the slingshot, and the coil? So they're trying to teach Newton's second law. Um, you're testifying before Congress tomorrow. You're using examples such as this. Are you going to recommend that the U.S. stops funding UNRWA entirely? 
Well, we are going to recommend that UNRWA is simply not capable of educating children. It has failed in its duty of care to children. It teaches a curriculum, and we've been warning about this for years, a curriculum which every single day incites young people to violence, a curriculum which tells them that jihad and martyrdom are the most important meanings of life, a curriculum which tells them that they must sacrifice themselves, that an attack on a bus of civilians using firebombs is a barbecue party and should be celebrated. They are taught in math to add up by using martyrs of the first intifada and the second intifada. And that example you point to there is, is a physics example. You know, I think what this points to is that this curriculum uses every single possibility across all grades and across all subjects to radicalize young people. And, and, and that is appalling. You know, what we saw on October the 7th is directly connected to this school curriculum. As you say, they run the majority of schools in, in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So imagine 3,000 terrorists who came over that international border on October the 7th, raping, murdering, and beheading. They, the majority of them, more than likely statistically, went to these UNRWA schools. So it is just not possible that UNRWA can continue to educate children. They have failed entirely in their duty of care. So nobody's in school right now in Gaza, mm -hmm. right? I mean, people are running for their lives and sure. there's a horrible humanitarian crisis. Uh, we just heard in Nick's piece, um, a displaced Palestinian saying mm -hmm. that the suspension of UNRWA aid means a quote, death sentence for Gazans. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that, that aid in, in general should be suspended at this time that so many Gazans are literally starving mm -hmm. to death? No, no, of course not. Um, and, you know, we are an institute that focuses on standards of peace and tolerance in, in education. And we will look across the whole Middle East where we see remarkable improvements, by the way. Um, but, but no, you know, we are, we are not experts on aid. One thing I can tell you, by the way, is Nora UNRWA. UNRWA actually asked that aid that was going through one of the crossings um, on Saturday was stopped because they could not cope with it. And I think, you know, this is part of the problem. And I think there are solutions. There are an enormous amount of agencies and organizations who are capable of doing this job much better within the United Nations, outside of the United Nations. Aid, of course, should not be stopped. But, but to be focusing on education for a moment, you know, that cannot continue one day longer. It is just not conceivable yeah. that children can be incited to hatred, to violence, to the kind of actions that we saw on October the 7th, one single more day. And there are really good solutions to that. The curriculum can be changed quickly. Um, PDFs within the textbooks can be swapped. A brand new curriculum can be taught, which meets UNESCO-derived standards of peace and tolerance. So it does not have to be this way. UNRWA was warned year on year that they have to stop teaching hate. They refused. So I'm um, devil's advocate here. Sure. Hamas is a brutal terrorist group. Indeed. Nobody knows them more than the Palestinians whom they've been oppressing in Gaza. Indeed. Is it possible with Hamas in charge for any educational organization, any charitable uh, or aid organization to function without that kind of hateful propaganda becoming part of the curriculum? Yes, listen, I, I think it is absolutely possible. And I think textbooks are the key. Um, education is uniquely authoritative. Textbooks stand at the center of that. They can act as a wonderful barrier to radicalization and so change the textbooks and we've seen this happen all over the Middle East change the textbooks teach peace teach tolerance and you can change 
societies. It's a matter of will. And I think the international community is aware of this. They have known for years about this UNRWA hate teaching. I think the reaction that we saw um, over this weekend was not just a one-off. It was the international community saying, you know what, this is enough. We've heard this for months. We've heard this for years. There can no longer be this kind of indoctrination and we can no longer support it. All right, Marcus Sheff, uh, we'll be following your testimony uh, tomorrow on Capitol Hill uh, in the hearing on UNRWA. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. One of the most powerful nonprofits in the United States now faces a major corruption case. Today, the outgoing CEO of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, took the witness stand. What did he say about years of billing his lavish lifestyle to the charity group? We'll tell you next. And this just into the money lead, another record close for the S&P 500 and the Dow. Seen here up more than 200 points. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our Law and Justice lead, what was intentionally kept in the shadows for decades, now clearly laid out in court. The head of the National Rifle Association admitting under oath to lavish spending from private jets to luxury yachts, all paid for by member dues and vendors. Wayne LaPierre leaving the top job after driving the nation's most powerful lobbying group into filing for bankruptcy in the face of this civil corruption trial. Guns are now, of course, the leading cause of death for Americans age 1 to 19 in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control. But we would not know that if the NRA had continued to get its way because the NRA helped block any government-funded research on gun deaths for decades, along with many other efforts to ensure there are more guns than people in the United States. Mike Spees of the reporting group The Trace and writer for The New Yorker has long reported on the NRA and was in court today. Mike, what stood out uh, from LaPierre's testimony today? Well, one thing that really stood out is that he's, in some respects, falling on the sword now. I mean, there's no question anymore about whether or not he had done the wrong thing. He's basically op openly saying that the arrangements that he entered into prior to 2018, specifically uh, hiding payments through the NRA's longtime PR firm or going on these fancy vacations to his vendor's yacht 
or the Taj Mahal and those kinds of places that that was clearly the wrong thing to do and that he should have been disclosing it to the board all along. But also at the same time, it wasn't done in bad faith. He just he just sort of made a mistake and didn't know better and then embarked on a course correction as they kept referring to it in 2018. And now, this, you know, according to him, the slate has more or less been wiped clean and uh, and they're on solid footing. Remind us what's at stake in this case, in this in this larger corruption case for the NRA. Well, in some ways, really, what's at, you know, the, the major thing that was at stake was whether or not Wayne was going to stay in power. But he voluntarily stepped down before the proceedings began. So now it's really a matter of whether or not he and several of the other defendants who are also or the other individual offendants are going to have to really like pay up uh, at the end of the proceedings and how much money, in fact, they owe uh, to the organization. With LaPierre stepping down, regardless of the verdict, do you think that the American people are going to see a different landscape going forward in terms of lobbying efforts around guns uh, as violence prevention groups like Everytown, Sandy Hook Promise and Moms Demand Action play a larger role? Because Wayne LaPierre, as you know, but maybe our viewers don't, he really changed the NRA uh, from what it was, which was a hunter's organization and sportsman's organization, to a major uh, maybe the most successful lobbying organization in American politics. Right. I think his legacy is that he made the issue extraordinarily binary and even tribal. And having been so successful at that, the way it is now is, you know, I would say the Republican Party has just effectively absorbed the entire NRA platform. And it just, it, it sort of became an extension of the organization and now just acts the way that it, Previous, like it acts in the way that lobbying once was necessary for it to act, and now maybe is not so necessary anymore, uh, based on the way it's socialized its constituents. And you know, it's like in some ways it's more similar to abortion. Uh, you know, it's sort of like you have the Democratic Party that is in some ways uniformly uh, in favor of regulation, and you have the Republican Party that's uniformly in favor or opposed to it. And that's and that's sort of the landscape. And I think until people start understanding that pointing to an outside group as opposed to lawmakers who are the ones who are now truly and officially accountable, it will be tough to make real headway. Yeah. Mike Spies of Trace in the New Yorker, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the Far Right Network, One America News, OAN, responding to explosive claims that OAN may have engaged in criminal activities with an email sent to a former Trump campaign attorney. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead today, the voting technology company Smartmatic, which is suing Fox and other right-wing outlets for defamation over their 2020 election lies, Smartmatic is now making a new and uh, truly shocking allegations, this time against perhaps the Trumpiest of the pro-Trump networks, One America News, or OAN. Let's bring in CNN's Marshall Cohen. And Marshall, you've been looking through court documents where Smartmatic says OAN's executives may have engaged in criminal activities while promoting 2020 election lies. What, what specifically are they alleging? Yeah, this is a pretty wild story, Jake. According to court filings after the 2020 election, OAN's president, Charles Herring, sent an email to former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell, of all people, and in that email was a spreadsheet that claimed to contain the passwords of Smartmatic employees. This has not been 
previously reported, and we put this story together by examining court filings in three separate defamation cases. It's not clear how Herring and OAN obtained that spreadsheet, and it's not clear if the passwords were real, but Smartmatic is arguing that this is a real problem for OAN. Uh, let me read for you something that they told a federal judge last month in a court filing. They said that Smartmatic uh, believes that OAN executives, quote, may have engaged in criminal activities because they appear to have violated state and federal laws regarding data privacy. Remember, this was back when both OAN and Sidney Powell and a bunch of other pro-Trump figures were brazenly peddling the lie that the election was rigged and Smartmatic was to blame. And how is OAN responding? Well, they uh, deny wrongdoing. First of all, they deny defaming anybody, and they're also refuting the allegation of any criminality. I'll read for you a statement from their lead attorney, Charles Babcock. He said that this, quote, vague accusation is a clumsy attempt to smear OAN and to divert attention from Smartmatic's own misconduct. He went on to point out that the DOJ has actually implicated some Smartmatic employees in a bribery scandal in the Philippines. But Jake, go back to 2020. Remember what was happening back then. This email from Herring to Powell, it was remarkably just one day after that breach of the election systems in Coffee County, Georgia. Powell's associates down there were looking for evidence to back up those crazy voter fraud claims that was getting so much airtime on OAN. And she actually has pleaded guilty in Georgia to state crimes related to that breach. Oh, wow. Crazy stuff. And, of course, uh, Smartmatic's uh, suit against Fox Core. It's been expanded to Fox Core, not just Fox News, uh, continues. More than $2 billion in that suit for those lies. That's right. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Uh, Marshall Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. A juror who helped send Alex Murdoch to prison now says someone influenced his, his uh, vote in the verdict. Might that testimony today lead to a new trial for the South Carolina attorney who is in prison for killing his wife and son? We're now expecting the judge to weigh in at any moment. Stay with us. Also in our Law and Justice lead today, any moment we expect a judge to decide whether Alec Murdoch will get a new trial. As you may recall, the disgraced former attorney from South Carolina is serving two life sentences for the murders of his wife and his youngest son, one of the jurors who voted to find Murdoch guilty last year testified today that the court clerk influenced her decision to convict. Let's get straight to CNN's Diane Gallagher, who is outside the courthouse in Columbia, South Carolina. Diane, how did we get to this point? Yeah, well, Jake, the question is whether or not that one juror's testimony, which has some caveats that we learned today, is going to be enough for this judge. She is the retired chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, known for her very intense and decisive rulings. We expect in a matter of minutes to learn if Alec Murdoch will get a new trial in the murders of his wife and son. They argue that the, the clerk of court was tampering with this jury. At least one juror says she was influenced. I did not pressure the jury. But that's exactly what Alec Murdoch is trying to prove happened in his quest for a new murder trial. Back in court again today, nearly one year after a jury found him guilty of shooting and killing his wife and son at their family hunting estate in June 2021. Guilty 
verdict. At the center of today's hearing, Collison County Clerk of Court Rebecca Becky Hill, a fixture of the six-week murder trial, and the allegations from Murdoch's defense team that she tampered with that jury to secure a book deal and media appearances that they say she wouldn't get if there had been a mistrial. It didn't matter to me if it was guilty, not guilty, or a mistrial. Well, in your book, you suggest that uh, the guilty verdict was what you wanted. Hill repeatedly denying this on the stand Monday. Did you interact with any juror in an attempt to influence their view of the facts in the State v. Murdoch case? No. The judge set a high bar for the defense. They must prove not just that Hill tampered with the jury, but that it had an impact on the jury's verdict, disguising their identities as she questioned juror after juror. Did you hear Ms. Becky Hill make any comment about this case before your verdict? Nine out of 12 saying they did not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am, I did not. No. But others saying they did. It was the day that Mr. Murdoch was taking the stand. Yes, sir. And um, she made a comment about watch his body language. What did Ms. Hill say? To watch his actions. To watch his actions. What else? To watch him closely. That's George Z, who shocked the courtroom with her answer to the judge's next question. Was your verdict influenced in any way by the communications of the clerk of court in this case? Yes, ma'am. And how was it influenced? It felt like she made it seem like he was already guilty. Did that affect your finding of guilty in this case? Yes, ma'am. The only juror out of the 12 to say that her decision was influenced by Hill, but attorneys quickly pointing out that her testimony differed from her signed affidavit, which the judge then read back to her. I had questions about Mr. Murdoch's guilt, but voted guilty because I felt pressured by the other jurors. Is that an accurate uh, statement about uh, your verdict? Yes, ma'am. Despite objections from Murdoch's attorney. This juror gave two statements under oath, one in an affidavit and one here to you today. It could be both. The judge would not allow further clarification, but the decision on whether Murdoch will get a new trial could hinge on that one response. And we will find out what that decision is in a matter of minutes. Jake, the judge said to be coming back from her chambers where she was reviewing today's testimony any minute now. This is, again, her decision. And if she decides that Alec Murdoch should get a new trial, his convictions for the murders of his wife and son will be thrown out. And we'll start this all over again. Of course, just about a year ago, we were in Colleton County beginning that six-week trial. And it is quite possible, although his attorneys have said they think that the, the, the burden of proof may be too high, but it is quite possible that we could be doing the same thing all over again. Uh, potentially devastating testimony. Diane Gallagher in Columbia, South Carolina, thanks so much. We're going to bring you that decision the moment it comes down. But until then, in Oklahoma, the Republican Party just censured their own U.S. Senator, James Lankford, condemning him for leading negotiations on a border deal. Um, all right. Why is that a bad thing? Well, we'll tell you next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
at this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tiber. This hour, we are standing by for a judge's decision. We're expecting at any second in South Carolina and a push for a new trial for Alex Murdoch, the South Carolina attorney convicted last year of killing his wife and son. We're going to bring you that judge's decision the moment it happens. Plus, CNN on the ground in Ukraine coming under artillery fire. 100 meters, gotcha. We're now trying to make our way out of here as safe as possible. Plus, see up close the intense fight in the forest through the lens of a soldier's GoPro camera showing what Ukraine is up against these days. But leading this hour, the latest dysfunction on Capitol Hill, this time over immigration, beginning with a look at how we got here. You'll all recall when President Biden was sworn in on January 20th, 2021, the new administration started ending many of the Trump administration's immigration policies, arguing that they were harsh and inhumane. For instance, the Remain in Mexico policy, which forced would-be asylum seekers to stay south of the border. Migrant arrivals and requests for asylum surged. Last May, along party lines, House Republicans passed H.R. 2. That's a bill that would bring back Trump-era policies. President Biden threatened to veto the bill, and it's gone nowhere in the Democratic-controlled Senate. Last October, Republicans demanded that any additional aid for Ukraine and or Israel would also need to include legislation to deal with the border crisis. Republican Senator James Langford of Oklahoma, along with Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, the three of them started negotiating for a possible compromise. In mid-December, apparently hoping to win passage of the aid for Ukraine, the White House signaled that they would accept some of the Republicans' immigration demands, including limits on asylum and an expansion of detention and deportation efforts. This meant, for all intents and purposes, that the Lankford Cinema Murphy compromise would be the most conservative immigration compromise that the Senate had taken up in decades. But then, in a January 17th post on Truth Social, former President Donald Trump wrote, I do not think we should do a border deal at all unless we get everything. More posts followed along those lines. You will recall that Donald Trump was not able to pass any immigration reform when he was president. It did become clear that Trump wanted to use this issue against Biden in November, and that was why he wanted to stand in the way of any progress on it. On Friday, House Speaker Mike Johnson, who frequently communicates with Team Trump, sent a letter to his colleagues saying that the emerging border deal in the Senate would be, quote, dead on arrival in the House. And believe it or not, right now in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Republican Party is condemning Lankford for having the temerity to try to solve a major problem in this country. That brings us to today. CNN's Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill. Melanie, is there any hope for the Senate negotiations now? When will senators even reveal the, the details of this deal? Well, negotiators are still hoping to reveal bill text 
sometime this week. But Jake, the deal is already facing massive headwinds inside the GOP, particularly in the House. You mentioned Speaker Johnson has made clear that the deal, as he understands it, is likely dead on arrival in the House. And today he put out yet another statement taking aim at one of the reported provisions in this deal, saying on social media, any border shutdown authority that allows even one illegal crossing is a non-starter. Thousands each day is outrageous. The number must be zero. Now, that is a reference to a provision we have learned is in the Senate deal that would automatically shut down the southern border if average daily migrant crossings reach over 5,000 in a one-week span. We've also learned that negotiators have agreed to a provision that would speed up the process for those seeking asylum to six months and also expedite work permits. So those are some pretty significant concessions here from Democrats. In fact, this would likely be the most conservative immigration deal being discussed on Capitol Hill in decades, and President Biden has indicated that he would sign that package into law if it comes to his desk. And yet, despite all of that, it is very unclear whether it will reach Biden's desk. And a huge reason for that, Jake, is Donald Trump, the Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination. He has been urging Republicans both privately and publicly to reject this compromise in a large part because he wants to campaign on this issue and he does not want to have Biden and Democrats a victory. And many Republicans here on Capitol Hill eager to follow his marching orders. And that is what you're seeing right now on Capitol Hill, which is leaving border security and aid for Israel and Ukraine hanging in the balance, Jake. Meanwhile, the House, uh, which is back in session today, is working on impeaching the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Why? What, what did yeah. he do that is impeachable? Uh, well, Jake, there's probably two ways to answer that question. The first is what Republicans say they are doing, why they are impeaching Mayorkas. In their impeachment articles, which they unveiled yesterday, they said he has not maintained operational control of the border, that he has not enforced laws on the books, and then he's lost the trust of the American public, all of which Democrats and constitutional experts say is a policy dispute and does not rise to a high crime or misdemeanor. But the other element at play here, the reason they are pursuing these impeachment impeachment articles now is politics. Speaker Mike Johnson has been under pressure from his right flank. The base has been urging and itching for revenge, really, after Donald Trump was impeached twice when House Democrats had control of the House. And so now you're seeing moderate Republicans lining up behind this. Speaker Johnson promising to move quickly to put this on the floor, even while he promises to reject the Senate compromise deal, which could help stem that flow of migrants at the border, that same flow of migrants, which now Republicans in the House are saying they want to impeach Mayorkas over, Jake. Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. Let's discuss all of this with our political experts, David Axelrod. Listen to something uh, Republican Senator James Langford, who's been leading the negotiations, said uh, about what's happening. It is interesting. Republicans four months ago would not give funding for Ukraine, for Israel, and for our southern border because we demanded changes in policy. So we actually locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting a few months later when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. He, he, he doesn't single out his own party, the House, or Donald Trump uh, in that comment there. But I mean... He's at war with his own party. Yeah. Well, his, his own party is at war with him because uh, Donald Trump lit the fuse. Uh, you know, the, the Oklahoma party's uh, censuring him for working on a solution to a problem that 
everyone agrees uh, needs a solution. It's uh, and and I think what's going to happen next, Jake, is and you saw it. It was previewed by J.D. Vance today. They're going to start going to Republican senators saying the House will never take this bill up. Don't walk the plank and support it or you'll get into the same hot water that Lankford's gotten into. Also, that Donald Trump can preserve this issue uh, for November. This is exactly what angers people about politics. They have a sense that too often politicians would rather weaponize a problem than, uh, than solve it. Uh, and this is precisely what's going on right now. And Jonah, as David just mentioned, on Saturday, the Oklahoma Republican Party approved a resolution condemning and censuring Senator James Lankford for his role as a chief negotiator in the Senate border security talks. Again, empirically, this is the most conservative of all the immigration compromises that I've covered in the last 25 years. Um, they're accusing him of playing fast and loose with Democrats. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the censuring of Lankford is just embarrassing because, uh, you know, in the, in the setup piece, you're talking about how people are opposed to uh, this compromise. They're not opposed to this compromise. They're opposed to a compromise, period, right? And that's essentially Langford's sin here. Now, I have lots of friends who are very worried about some of what the reported details, this 5,000 daily crossings number. Remember, Jay Johnson had said 1,000 a day uh, overwhelms the system. That is a legitimate policy disagreement. The problem is, is that Trump is not offering a legitimate policy yeah. agreement. He's just saying if, if there's a problem with it, if they do it, it's bad. Let's listen into the judge here in uh, South Carolina. And two, prejudice suffered by the defendants, specifically that the Hill improper comments uh, in, uh, to the juror or jurors influenced the juror to vote to convict defendant Murdoch. The facts. Did clerk of court Hill make comments to any juror which expressed her opinion of what the verdict would be. Ms. Hill denies A, and so the question becomes, was her denial credible? I find that the clerk of court is not completely credible as a witness. Ms. Hill was attracted by the siren call of celebrity. She wanted to write a book about the trial and expressed that as early as November 2022 long before the trial began. She denies that uh, uh, this is so, but I find uh, that she stated to the clerk of court, Rhonda McElveen and others, her desire for a guilty verdict because it would sell books. She made comments about Murdoch's demeanor as he testified, and she made some of those comments before he testified to at least one and maybe more jurors. Did Clerk of Court Hill's comments have any impact on the verdict of the jury? I find that the answer to this question is no. Each member of this jury took their involuntary assignment very seriously. They obeyed the instructions of the court. They obeyed their oath. These good and decent citizens of Carlton County stood to their duty and rendered their verdict without fear or favor. It was a difficult task. Eleven of the jurors very unconditionally said uh, they either heard no comment or if they heard a comment, it had no effect. One juror was ambivalent 
in her testimony. She was then examined on her previous affidavit in which she said the effect, if any, that she had was pressure she felt from other jurors. The cases are myriad that pressure from fellow jurors is a part of the normal give and take of jury deliberations. The court is not to inquire in any way about what is said in those deliberations. But the juror was somewhat ambivalent, said on her oath at the time of trial twice, and said on her oath before me in these proceedings that she stood to her oath. The clerk of court allowed public attention of the moment to overcome her duty. I have read the entire transcript of this lengthy trial, not an easy task. I have studied in detail all of the authorities cited. I have in independently researched the case law, learned treatises, and scholarly articles on the subject. Although there is certainly a split in the federal circuits and in the states on the standard of review, I simply do not believe that the authority of our South Carolina Supreme Court requires a new trial in a very lengthy trial such as this. States on the standard of review. I simply do not believe that the authority of our South Carolina Supreme Court requires a new trial in a very lengthy trial such as this on the strength of some fleeting and foolish comments by a publicity-influenced clerk of court. This is a matter within the discretion of the trial judge, and I am the trial judge at this moment. I do not feel that I abuse my discretion when I find the defendant's motion for a new trial on the factual record before me must be denied, and it is so ordered. I will file a fuller order which denies this motion on the grounds I have recited on the record before me as a trial judge uh, and the authorities that have been cited by all parties in this matter. To that end, I will hold the record open. I direct that within four business days of receipt by the attorneys in this matter of a transcript of these proceedings, a proposed order by the state denying the defendant's motion for a new trial with citations uh, be sent to me and to opposing counsel. I will allow the defendant four business days from receipt of the state's proposed order to lodge objections and or submit an alternative proposed order. Okay, we're going to break away from Judge Gene Toll there. There it is, the big news. Judge Toll has denied the motion for a new trial for Alec Murdoch, the disgraced former attorney from South Carolina, is serving two life sentences for the murders of his wife and youngest son. Uh, CNN's Diane Gallagher is outside the courthouse in Columbia, South Carolina. Diane, what happens now? 
So what's going to happen in the immediate moments here is that Alec Murdoch is going to go back to prison. He is still convicted of killing his wife and his son. He is a convicted murderer serving two consecutive life sentences. We do expect his attorneys to come out and speak in just a few moments. They signal to us that they will hold a press conference as soon as they leave uh, the chambers there. And uh, they, they signaled just before the judge came out that they did think they might lose uh, this particular quest to get a new trial. Now, legally, what may happen next is the fact that look, they already had an appeal at the Court of Appeals that they were beginning. They had to get that suspended so they could uh, uh, try and get this new trial. So we'll likely see them attempt to go and uh, go for that appeal afterward. Now, again, even if Alec Murdoch had been given a new trial, he wasn't going to get out of prison. He's serving a 20-year sentence as well for a slew of financial charges uh, that he committed against former clients, family members, uh, his former housekeeper's family, uh, people like that. There's also federal sentencing that he's a waiting as well. So he wasn't going to get out of prison, but uh, this is a blow to the Murdoch team. I will say also a blur, a bl excuse me, a blow to clerk of court Becky Hill. The judge essentially saying that they did not find her credible today in listening to that, but it was not so much that he thought uh, that the judge thought that they had surpassed that very high bar that the judge set for the defense team, that they had to determine that any sort of influence from Becky Hill actually actually impacted the verdict itself. And that juror, Juror Z, as they were calling her, who said that she did feel influenced by uh, Becky Hill's comments, also had said earlier that she actually felt influenced by the other members of the jury. And so, uh, Jake, they decided that perhaps those were conflicting statements. She was a bit wishy-washy there. Uh, there are two state investigations into the clerk of court right now, one of them related to the potential of jury tampering. So Becky Hill, while she her actions may not have gotten Alec Murdoch a new trial, she is definitely not necessarily out of the woods in terms of uh, what may happen to her as related to this trial. Uh, Jake. All right, Diane Gallagher outside the courthouse in Columbia, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Let's bring in uh, attorney and legal affairs commentator Ariva Martin. Ariva, the allegation by this one juror uh, is troubling, um, but it's also just one juror. The other 11 said they were not influenced by the court clerk. She apparently has said that she was influenced by the court clerk and also was influenced by the other jurors pressuring, pressuring her. Um, were you surprised that the judge decided to not allow Murdoch a new trial? Not surprised at all, Jake, particularly given the factual record that was created during the uh, hearing that the judge held on this matter. Uh, the judge needed to hear from those jurors that, in fact, they had been influenced as it related to their decision to hold Murdoch or to come back with guilty verdicts for Murdoch on the double murder of his wife and son. And in the absence of those jurors stating that pretty plainly and pretty affirmatively, I expected that the judge would rule in the way that he did. Uh, but as uh, the reporter said, very scathing comments about this former uh, clerk and what the judge said, her celebrity seeking uh, activities. Is it common for a judge to grant a request for a new trial, let alone one as high profile as this one, um, based off one juror's allegation? Very difficult to get a new trial, uh, Jake, under what I'll call usual circumstances. Uh, but definitely when you have allegations like in this case about juror 
tampering, the judge would have needed to see a lot more and probably uh, not only an affirmative statement from that one juror, but perhaps even from others. So the judge did say that there's some split decisions in South Carolina on this issue and even in the federal court. So uh, I, I expect we'll see this going up on appeal. All right, Areva Martin, thank you so much. The decision just coming in, a judge denying the request for a new trial uh, brought from Alex Murdoch, uh, the former attorney convicted of killing his wife and son. Keep it here for reaction on the lead and online at CNN.com. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back with our politics lead, President Biden, facing multiple foreign policy challenges as he seeks a second term for the White House. Just some include convincing Congress to send Ukraine aid, getting American hostages out of Gaza, and now how or if to retaliate against Sunday's drone strike uh, in Jordan that killed three American soldiers and wounded more than 40 others. Jonah Goldberg's back with me, along with former Obama administration official Nayira Huck. Uh, Nayira, uh, President Biden and the administration are blaming Iranian-backed militant groups for the drone attacks. Uh, Iran, of course, denying any involvement whatsoever. Um, realistically, like, where's the line in terms of retaliating, but also, and deterring, but also not getting into a war with Iran and prompting World War III? Well, there's a strategic answer to that uh, in military context, and then there's a political answer to that. The strategic one is don't go after Iran inside um, its own territory. Go after the other proxies. Um, have it as a tiered response so it's not just boom, there's a, a series of consequences that these proxies will feel. But politically, Biden does have to look responsive. He has to look strong. It's part of why after, during the draw down of Afghanistan in his first year, when American soldiers were killed, he retaliated quickly. We find out only days later that was actually not ISIS-K members who were killed, but an aid worker and his children. So the, the swift response can often lead to serious consequences. So, Jonah, some Republicans are, are attacking Biden, saying he needs to be tougher against Iran and his proxies, um, while others are going after each other. So look at what um, Tucker Carlson posted on, on X or Twitter about Republican senators Lindsey Graham in South Carolina and uh, John Cornyn in Texas. Uh, both, you know, target Tehran, hit Iran now, hit them hard. And Carlson writes, effing lunatics. Mm -hmm. This is, this is the, deba the debate right now within the Republican Party. Yeah, well, look, I mean, Tucker Carlson uh, has, uh, has proven horseshoe theory correct in many ways. He has embraced the sort of far, far left um, foreign policy worldview these days. And um, I just want to say, just sort of to get back to this topic, um, love Nair completely disagree with her. The That's whole point why you're here, is, to disagree. The whole point of being a superpower <laughs> is that when uh, smaller countries attack us, they should be afraid that we'll escalate. We should not be afraid that Iran escalates. Iran is using these proxies, and because they're proxies, they don't care if the proxies get hit. That's, they're, dis they're disposable. They're like drone bees. No, it's, it's an old saying uh, for people who follow the Middle East that Iran is willing to fight to the death of the last Palestinian. That's right. And so the whole reason we're in this is because we, I think the Biden administration has been, mirror, has been suffering from what they call mirroring in foreign policy. They think Iran is afraid of um, a war with the United States when really it's the United States that's afraid of a war with Iran. And so our responses well, to it, fairly. but our responses to it have been, I mean, you're talking about proportionality and all that kind of stuff. 
we've been doing proportionality for months now. We've been attacked over 100 times. It is time to actually send a signal to Iran that they pay a price when they authorize these proxies to do this stuff. Well, the, the price actually can be paid, as I said, absent going into Iran proper. Yeah, because right, their Navy. Because the real, right, the real, the real like contrast, yeah. the real contrast is that American soldiers were killed not on U.S. soil, right? A Hassan, uh, Hassan Soleimani was a targeted strike on an Iranian leader in, in Syria, right? right? So the, the, those are the ways, but the proxies, yeah. right? The, the idea of immediately going into an invasion of Iran is not militarily feasible. They have a significant military apparatus, certainly not for a president who has said he does not want to have forever wars. Yeah, I don't want to invade do you do you agree though that that what Biden has been doing so far has not been deterrent? Clearly it hasn't. We've right. had more than 160 of these back and forth tit for tat responses. So that idea of escalation needs to be a response that is considered significant, but also I would say it is not what feels significant to the American public of shock and awe. It needs to be significant to Iran as well as other adversaries in the region. But you have literally uh, Cornyn and Lindsey Graham saying attack Iran, not just the Houthis or Hezbollah or whatever the names of, of the, the Iranian-backed militias in Syria and Iraq or Hamas, not them, but Iran. That's, that's what yeah, Cornyn I is mean, calling for. I, I hate the phrase, uh, take them seriously, not literally, but right. I think that's what they're trying to get at. I mean, uh, the, the fact is, is that it needs to be a disproportionate response that Iran feels that is a serious response. It can't be a response that, um, just moves the goalpost a millimeter because that's how we got into this situation already. And so we're actually not disagreeing, though I know you really wanted to yeah, today. Yeah. Um, it, it's the idea that the proxies and their networks are valuable to Iran. Otherwise, they would not be leaving their entire national security apparatus to be funding and supporting them. Right, so but the Soleimani case there. is a good example. Soleimani was an Iranian. He was the head of the IRGC. Those guys travel around to police their proxies. We can yeah. kill them on foreign soil, and we should kill a lot of them. All right. Also known as he's agreeing with Tucker Carlson. No, 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 because I don't think Tucker Carlson would be in favor of the IRG, but I don't speak yeah. to Tucker, so who knows? Yeah. Anyway, thanks to both you, uh, Nayara and Jonah. Great to have you here. Coming up next, CNN back in Gaza, invited by Israel's military, the elaborate tunnel system the IDF uh, wanted to show us, and then there are, of course, parts that they did not want to show us. Stay with us. Back with our world lead now, a week after a CNN investigation into the Israeli military's destruction of cemeteries in Gaza, the IDF invited CNN's Jeremy Diamond to what they say was a Hamas tunnel underneath a Gaza cemetery. Then they refused to show him exactly where the tunnel entrance was in the crater that was once a graveyard. This is no ordinary quarry. It's where the living once buried their dead. Gaza's Bani Sahela Cemetery hollowed out by Israeli excavators. These were all graves. This was a cemetery, but the military says that they were forced to come in here because they discovered a Hamas tunnel running right underneath that cemetery. But the Israeli military failed to prove that stunning claim during a three-hour tour of the area. They invited us here a week after we first uncovered this graveyard's partial destruction using satellite imagery, part of a CNN investigation that found 16 cemeteries in Gaza damaged or destroyed by the Israeli military. This whole area here is a military compound. From the mosque over there 
underneath the graveyard all the way down north and south. My forces, the beginning, we try to flank this area, were fired from this area again and again and again. They couldn't understand why. So that's how you determine that there was a, a tunnel here because you were being fired upon? Yes, sir. Our journey to investigate the Israeli military's claims begins in the rubble of what they say was a residential building. Even just standing at the mouth of this tunnel, you can feel the humidity just like emanating here. And this is the way that we go in to what they say is an extensive tunnel system in Bani Suhela. We descend into a dark, seemingly endless labyrinth. There's just tight spaces like this in certain parts of this tunnel. But then you get here and you have full headspace pretty much. All throughout it, you can see that there's electricity, there's telecommunications. The Israeli military says that this tunnel system actually leads to a Hamas command center, which they say was used by Hamas fighters to coordinate their attacks. The Israeli military says this is that command center. Multiple rooms equipped with plumbing and electricity. Maps like this once lining the walls. You can see a kitchen here equipped with a sink, running water, with the pipes running through the tunnel wall, you have a fan, plates. I mean, you could imagine this being in a house, but instead it's deep, deep underground. Where are we right now? I mean, what's above us? So we're in the headquarters of a Hamas commander. Uh, above us is a cemetery uh, that I showed you from the outside. If you look at the satellite imagery of this cemetery, there is a wide area that the military has cleared. Why is that necessary in order to uncover these tunnels? We had to reach the tunnels. We had to reach the tunnels. We had to uncover the tunnels. We had to prevent from the enemy to flank us. But there's no way for us to verify whether we are actually beneath the graveyard. General Goldfuss takes us back out of the tunnel, but not into the cemetery. Instead, we leave the same way we came in, before walking back to the enormous hole where the cemetery once stood. Please, hold on a second. Yeah. We're asking the general if we can actually see the shaft to the tunnel. But the answer is no. So? There's all kinds of machinery which I don't want you to, uh, just to take pictures of, the security of my forces. But what about if we don't film it, we just no, look with our eyes? If we... you might fall in, the whole thing can collapse. Well, you have to walk to the edge, the edge is not secured, it can collapse, there's machinery, so on. It's, it's not something I'm going to take a risk on. Sorry. The Israeli military later provided this drone footage, showing the tunnel shaft we entered and another one nearby. CNN geolocated the footage using this satellite image. This outline shows where the cemetery once stood, and these are the two tunnel entrances clearly outside the graveyard. As for the tunnel they say they found here, where the cemetery once stood, the military never provided any evidence. And Jake, we pressed the Israeli military multiple times for that evidence, but instead they released a press release today that actually poked more holes in their story. The story that General Goldfuss told us when we were in that underground command center. He said that we were just below the cemetery, but the press release, a map that the Israeli military released today, actually places that command center well outside the bounds of that cemetery. 
more questions than answers. Jake. All right, CNN's Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv, Israel for us. Thank you so much. The United Nations estimates that nearly 20,000 babies in Gaza have been born into this war. Coming up next, CNN's Jamana Karache is giving us the perspective of these mothers and the dire situation in which they now live. Back with our world lead, aid organizations are outraged at what they call a, quote, reckless decision by major government donors to suspend funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, after an Israeli intelligence report uh, alleged that of the 13 staffers associated with the horrific October 7th terrorist attack, six infiltrated Israel that day, four kidnapped Israelis, three got texts the night before to prepare for the attack, though their participation in the massacre was not confirmed, and at least one supplied logistic support. Now, as the future of the largest aid organization in Gaza hangs in the balance, CNN's Jamana Karache brings us the stories of Gaza's most vulnerable mothers and their newborns, and we must warn our viewers, you may find some of this content disturbing. Born into this world all alone, no parents by her side. Only a stranger's touch for the baby with no name. Delivered by C-section last month to a mother already gone, fatally injured in an explosion. She's been in an incubator since, stable now, but still fragile, doctors say. She's one of the nearly 20,000 born into this war. Every 10 minutes, a baby is born in Gaza, the UN says. Gaza is where the blessings of life are now a curse. Yezan is five months pregnant. Like most Gazans, her family's homeless. This, the toilets of a school turned shelter, is where they live. This is our life in the toilets, Umyazan says. We lay our mattresses and sleep here. Umyazan and her husband can hardly feed their children. There's not enough for their unborn child. I'm in my fifth month craving foods, but there's no food, no flour, nothing, she says. She's not had her iron supplements, not even a checkup in months. We wanted to check if there's a heartbeat, but there are no hospitals. They're only dealing with emergencies, she says. There are no scans to see if the baby's alive or not. Life is non-existent for pregnant women. Gaza's few remaining hospitals are overwhelmed with the seemingly endless flood of war casualties. There's no chance of carrying out routine care. And the estimated 50,000 pregnant women and their unborn babies are left out in the cold. Their already precarious situation before the war now dramatically worse. About 40% of all pregnancies are now high-risk, aid groups say. Miscarriages, stillbirths, preterm labor and maternal mortality are much more likely. For first-time mothers like Hiam, the excitement is overshadowed by this miserable existence that's now her life, soon to be her babies. Being pregnant with your first child should be nice. You eat, you rest, you sleep. But I didn't get any of that, Hiam says. Instead, she's had to flee several times, taking shelter in overcrowded hospitals, walking miles searching for safety. After walking for many hours, I was exhausted, she says. The baby was very weak. They told me I should be staying in the hospital, but there was no room, so I had to leave. She's now in this tent, sleeping on a sand floor. How will I give birth in war? When I have nothing for the baby, no formula, no diapers. We are in a tent and it's very cold for us. 
What would life be like for a tiny baby born into these conditions? It's hell. This burnt-out classroom in what's left of northern Gaza is the only shelter Mujud could find. She barely made it through the bombardment and labor, now struggling to keep her newborn healthy, clean and warm. We want to clean the classroom, but there's no disinfectant, Najud says. There's no health care, no clinics, no vaccinations for the baby. War has separated Najud from her husband. She's only been able to reach him once when she told him they had a baby girl, Habiba. Najud's mother spends her days trying to find what she can to feed her daughter. This is my first grandchild. It's supposed to be happiness, she says. But I couldn't celebrate. I wanted to prepare so many things for her to celebrate her arrival, my precious first granddaughter. She didn't even get the new clothes I bought her. It's never been harder to be a mother in Gaza. All you can do is hold your baby tight and hope you both survive this nightmare. Jumana Karachi, CNN, London. And our thanks to Jamana Karachi for that report. Up next, we go to Ukraine and look at footage from a GoPro camera strapped to a Ukrainian soldier while he is in the trenches, in battle. What he told us about the fight with Russia, plus the moment a CNN crew came under fire. Stay with us. More now in our world lead fight in the forests. The landscape in parts of eastern Ukraine is proving to be one of the toughest aspects in Ukraine's defense against Putin's army. The trenches in which Ukrainian soldiers hunker down are, are cold and wet as Russians bomb and strike them with artillery. CNN's Fred Pleitkin and crew even came under fire themselves trying to get to this area. A warning, some of the images we're about to show you in this report are disturbing. All-out warfare in unforgiving terrain. Forest battles in eastern Ukraine mean facing a near-constant Russian onslaught. Vladimir Putin's army trying to break through Ukrainian defenses. Dimitro is one of those holding them up. The situation is very active and very tense, he says, because the enemy has much more equipment and manpower. Basically, every day they try to storm the positions. A dead Russian soldier and a destroyed tank show just how close the Russians have come. It's a fight for survival and against the elements. The trench, cold, wet and soggy, the only heat coming from candles the soldiers cower around, gathering strength to face overwhelming Russian firepower. They shoot direct fire. Planes are flying. Basically, they have it all, he says. But probably the worst are tanks. When they fire, you don't even hear it. You hear an airplane when it comes over. With a tank, you're in God's hands. Artillery fire, another threat here, as we found out when we came under fire trying to make it to the area. Go! And this is unfortunately something that when we work here in the east of the country happens all too often. We were getting ready to film here and then all of a sudden we heard what appeared to be outgoing artillery but then a shell came in. 100 meters, gotcha. We're now trying to make our way out of here as safe as possible. That means we have to keep distance between our cars, but we also, of course, have to keep moving the entire time to make sure that we can get out of here, hopefully safely. We believe a Russian drone spotted us and directed the artillery fire, but two can play that game. 
Naziri is a Ukrainian drone pilot. He guides Kiev's artillery guns targeting Russian infantry, but also armored assault formations, including main battle tanks. He says ammo shortages mean he has to be extremely precise. It's no secret we're starved of artillery shells, he says. We try to work as efficiently and accurately as possible to hit the enemy's firepower. Trying to fight back any way they can on one of the toughest battlefields of this war. And Jake, the Ukrainians say by and large on that front line, they say that they're holding on. In fact, the troops there told us that they destroyed more than 40 tanks and armored vehicles in the span of just a couple of days. And yet the Russians keep coming. And one of the big issues right now for the Ukrainians is increased use of heavy Russian aerial bombs that they say can wreak havoc on those trenches that you saw there. All right, Fred Pleiken in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Breaking news this afternoon. New framework on a deal to release more hostages held by Hamas. The specifics on that ahead. We'll be right back. We have some breaking news for you now in our world lead. A broad framework for a hostage release deal and a potential ceasefire has been agreed to by negotiators in Paris, according to an official who is familiar with the talks. The U.S., Israel, Egypt, and Qatar were part of the negotiations. The basic framework was delivered to Hamas today. Israeli officials say there are still details that need to be worked out and that there are concerns about, quote, conditions that are not acceptable. We will see what happens next. CNN's Alex Marquardt is getting more specifics on this possible framework, and you can look for his report live next in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer which is starting now. I'll see you back here on The Lead tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.